All right, let's, uh, let's get it over with at the very beginning and then we don't have to worry any more about when it's coming. This program is all about contradiction. All together now. I'm very much afraid that it is. But that little opening exchange is quite interesting. We learn straight away that in order to contradict, we first need affirmation. Then we need negation. And negation as a philosophical concept is really quite important. Not only philosophically important, of course. <laughs> Dear, you see, I'm already contradicting myself. Shall we say denial is important as well as philosophically, then? And we'll be hearing more from an actual philosopher later, so you won't want to miss that, will you? No. Ah, there's something else we'll be hearing about, questions which invite contradiction like that last one. But even in my contradicting myself there, you'll have realised that in fact I was doing just the opposite. Not really denying something at all, but actually reinforcing it. It's very chimerical, this whole business. It is, I'll admit, no argument. That's my position and I've made it perfectly clear. Haven't I? No, you did not. Yes, I did. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. You didn't. Did. Well, look, this isn't an argument. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. It's just contradiction. No, it isn't. It is. It is not. Look, you just contradicted me. I did not. Oh, you did. No, no, no. You did just then. Nonsense. Oh, look, this is futile. No, it isn't. I came here for a good argument. No, you didn't. No, you came here for an argument. Well, an argument isn't just contradiction. Can be? No, it can't. An argument is a connected series of statements intended to establish a proposition. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. It's not just contradiction. Look, if I argue with you, I must take up a contrary position. Yes, but that's not just saying, no, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Argument is an intellectual process. Contradiction is just the automatic gainsaying of any statement the other person makes. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. Not at all. Part of the argument sketch from Monty Python, which brings me back to the point I was trying to make about the complexities of contradiction. For a start, no doesn't always mean no. It depends. It depends on lots of things. Listen to language expert Professor David Crystal. Depends on the intonation in which it's said. Um, coming out tonight? No. Coming out tonight? No. Means, well, perhaps I am, if you persuade me. So that falling, rising tune that you get there can actually quite fundamentally alter the basic meaning of the word. It's not just no, of course. Uh, any word can be altered in that way. Yes uh, is the same situation. Are you coming out tonight? Yes. Coming out tonight? Yes. Means no. So, what kind of language is this, where no can mean yes and yes can mean no? It sounds very much like a world in which the Queen of Hearts reigns supreme. Time to call in our philosopher to unravel some of these conundrums. Are your brain cells ready for a workout? Professor Anthony Grayling of Birkbeck College wants to paint a picture for you. Philosophers have examined this question of inconsistency and contradiction and, and contrariety and they've done it by means of what's called the square of opposition. That's the simplest way of explaining it. I've got to get your listeners to see this in their mind's eye. The pictures are better on radio. We all know that. So it goes like this. Uh, imagine a square and at the top left-hand corner you write all grass is green. Top right-hand corner you write no grass is green. Bottom left-hand corner you say some grass is green. Bottom right-hand corner, you say, some grass is not green. Now, when you've written this down, you can picture this, you'll see immediately, it's a great picture for this, that the top left-hand corner, which says, all grass is green, is contradicted by the bottom right-hand corner, which says, some grass is not green. And similarly for the top right-hand corner and the bottom left-hand corner. But there's a, a slightly more complex relationship between the top left-hand corner and the top right-hand corner, that is, all grass is green and no grass is green. Because you can see that those two propositions can't be true together, though they can both be false together. 
and they are called contraries. Now you look at the bottom left-hand corner, the bottom right-hand corner, some grass is green, some grass is not green, and you see that they can both be true together, but they can't both be false together, and they are called subcontraries. So they're slightly different from contradiction. And it's also the case that while you're looking at that square of opposition, you'll see that the top left entails the bottom left, and the top right entails the bottom right. Let us say they follow immediately without any other premises required. Ah, with us so far? Please don't say no. If so, you can always listen again, can't you? But Anthony Grayling touched on another favourite philosopher's subject there, truth. When you introduce the concept of truth into contradiction, it gets really, oh, what's the word? Difficult. No, and I mean no in the sense yes here. It becomes to a philosopher really interesting, especially when you get to our old friend, the double negative. We think of falsity being the exact opposite of truth, like a light switch, it's on or off. If something is not true, then it's false. If something is false, then it's not true. But it's not quite so simple as that, because the true-false opposition is rather different from the true-not-true opposition, because there are many more ways of being not true than just being false. So, for example, something might not be true because it's neither true nor false. Something might not be true because it's meaningless. And there are lots of things that we say which are perfectly meaningful, but which don't have a truth value. Like, for example, I do thee wed, or I promise you. These are utterances which make perfectly good sense, but they are not truth bearers, bearers of truth and falsity. In fact, this whole business about truth and falsity and, and true and not true is illuminated by the idea of negation, the idea of not because if you thought that we just had truth and its opposite falsity, then it would be the case that if you double negated something, that is if you said it is not the case that it is not the case that grass is green, then that would seem to be the same thing as saying grass is green because the two knots would cancel one another out. But if you didn't think that falsity is the only alternative to truth, that is if you thought that non-truth encompassed more than merely falsity, then it might turn out that the negation, the not, doesn't really just simply mean not. For example, there's an approach to mathematics called intuitionism in which you don't have truth and falsity, what you have is provability and unprovability. Now, this one you've got to listen carefully to. If you said it is not provable that it is not provable that X, you haven't said that X is provable. And that shows you that in that case, not, not x is not equal to x, as it would be if not not was the straightforward not, where not not x is the negation or contradiction of x. Just cause I ain't never read no nothing worth having, never ever, never, ever. You ain't got no call not to think of what I'm falling to thinking I ain't too. And it ain't not having one thing, no, not another, either, neither is it anything, whatever. Now, this might all seem very abstruse and academic, erudite, even intellectual, but negation is, in fact, important practically. For example, in testing hypotheses in science. You might not be able to prove that something is the case, but you might be able to establish that it's not possible to prove that something is the case. But not being able to prove that something is the case is not the same thing as proving that it's not the case. And so these little complexities and, and intricacies are really, really quite significant. 
in the whole tradition of uh, Western philosophy, and indeed in other philosophical traditions as well, the idea of, of contradicting somebody, that of arguing against somebody or refuting their conclusion, is, is very important. And in fact, in Plato, Plato's dialogues, you have a sort of model of, of that kind of, of uh, uh, philosophical progress. It's called dialectic. And this is where somebody advances a certain view and somebody else tries to refute it, or puts counter-arguments against it. And then out of the uh, negation of the uh, hypothesis put forward by the first individual, you get a kind of synthesis, you, you get a, a development, you can move on. Then somebody puts an argument against that. And so you get a process where, in Plato's view at any rate, you approximate closer and closer to the truth by progressively challenging, contradicting, undoing uh, some of the things that, that somebody else has said. So by this means, you can get close to the truth. And that's quite different and very important for Plato. A dialectical process is quite different from what he called heuristic. And heuristic is just being contrary for the sake of being contrary. Just negating, denying, disagreeing, attempting to refute, not in order to get to the truth, but in order to undermine your opponent. And if we're talking dialectics and heuristics, or aeristics as some prefer, what could be a better example to develop the impulse of Plato and Socrates than Marx himself? No, not Karl Marx. Groucho. Hello. I must be going. I cannot stay. I came to say I must be going. I'm glad I came, but just the same, I must be going. The comedy routines between Marx Brothers Groucho and Chico were quintessentially heuristic, deliberate contradictions, misunderstandings, non-sequiturs, a surreal kaleidoscope of contrary dialectic, as were lots of other double acts of the time, from Abbott and Costello, Burns and Allen, Flanagan and Allen, Sid Field and Jerry Desmond, right up to Morecambe and Wise. Well, we have our own double act to introduce to you now, Oliver Double. Oliver is a drama lecturer at the University of Kent who, as well as being the author of a number of books on comedy performance, has made something of a study of these crosstalk acts. Crosstalk is a kind of dialogue between the members of a double act and typically it involves kind of argument and, and I suppose contradiction, but it's also very fast cut. Rhythmically it's quite interesting. Normally in a double act, the classic formulation is that you have the straight man or straight woman in some cases and the funny man or funny woman. The dynamic of that is that the straight man is the person in position of authority who's the higher social status. They're generally, their voice is more refined and they seem to be of a higher social class than the funny man. But their efforts are, are continually undermined by the funny man. So. For example, I mean, a, a sort of, you know, an almost cornily classic example of this would be the straight man comes on to either sing a serious sentimental song or give a kind of improving monologue, which is completely destroyed by the funny man. It, it, in a way, it's order versus chaos. You know, in comedy, what you have is a situation where it's like a sort of broken pattern. That's, that's the, the, the commonest comic structure, you know, that things lead you to expect a certain thing, a certain outcome, and then that expectation is undermined by something else, an unexpected meaning of a word, for example. Now, in a double act, it's quite good, because what you can do is you can set the expectation with the straight man, which is then sort of continuously undermined by the funny man. 
One such act was Jimmy Jewell and Ben Warris, two real-life cousins from Sheffield, who for many years had a traditional double act on the variety stage, largely relying upon verbally contradicting and misunderstanding each other for comic effect. Here they are in a brief extract from their famous sketch, The Boxer. What's the idea of going around in that appalling dressing gown? I've taken up boxing. <laughs> you what? I've taken up boxing, having a go like, see? You've taken up boxing? Yeah. Oh, you haven't. Uh... Oh, yeah. <laughs> I say straight man, funny man, because it's simpler to say than straight person, funny person. Uh, but in fact, you, you get all sorts of different permutations within double acts. Here's a variation on the theme. Old Mother Riley and her daughter Kitty. I say, darling, I don't feel myself at all tonight. There isn't a kick in me. There isn't really. What do you say? What do you say? My daughter. Of course she isn't here. Oh, there she is. Hello, darling. Hello, mother. Am I, am I late? Of course you're late. I expect you'll be late, too. Oh, well, darling, I'm sorry, but I thought I was on time. You've never been on time only once in your life. Oh, well. <laughs> and tell me, Mommy, when was I on time once in my life? When you sat on the alarm clock. <laughs> Old Mother Riley is a, is a weird act in many, many ways. First of all, it's two female characters, but in real life played by a husband and wife. That's, I mean, get your head around that, it's really bizarre, particularly given that apparently there wasn't a particularly happy marriage and that the conflicts she saw on stage might have in some way mirrored the conflicts that they had in their private lives. I mean, in a way, you know, a double act is about the, the jokes and it's about the funny things they say and it's about the contradictions that are embodied within them. But at the same time, it's also about the relationship between the two. And although famously a number of double acts had appalling offstage relationships, I mean, Lewis and Martin was, was, was an obvious example. Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. And, you know, you, you hear these stories of people who never spoke to each other offstage and then went on and did the, the same act for years. But nonetheless, there's something happens between the two on stage, and that's the story of the act, in a way. It's interesting how many of those who could, like this, come together in harmony as professional contradictorists on stage should have personal lives that were genuinely contradictory and, in some cases, end up hating each other. Perhaps one of the great classic double acts was Sid Field and his straight man, Jerry Desmond, and one of their most famous sketches, golfing. And what's interesting about the golfing sketch is that because um, Jerry Desmond comes across, to put it crudely, well posh, even though Sid Field isn't exactly common, somehow he's not as posh as Jerry Desmond. What um, Sid Field is, is a bit gormless and also curiously camp. And I think that's a, a beautiful combination because it means that he can get laughs, he can make a line funny that really on the page isn't that funny. Classic example when a lot of the sketch is based on simple misunderstandings. So it's, it's the contradiction within a, a word or a phrase. So, for example, he tells him to make the tea, meaning to sort of tea off in golf. But he thinks he means make the tea as in make a cup of tea. And he says, make the tea with sand. Right, now that joke, that's the joke, right? It's making the tea, it's a pun on that. But the way it plays out is that Sid Field goes, I'm not drinking that stuff. And it's the tone of voice. And if you see his face, it's the, it's the attempt to make out that the other guy's the idiot. Now make the tea. Make the what? 
Make the tea. I thought you were going to play golf. So we are. Well, what did you talk about making tea for, then? Oh, no, make the tea with sand. <sighs> I'm not drinking that stuff. What stuff? Tea with sand. Don't be foolhardy. <laughs> tea with sand, more like cocoa. In this classic array of British comic giants, we mustn't forget big-hearted Arthur. Arthur Kersler had this idea of bisociation, right, which is the idea that there are kind of universes of discourse and that what happens in a joke is that two different planes of discourse intersect with each other in an unexpected way. And often, so, so the way he's got a brilliant diagram where he has one plane physically sort of at right angles cross in a cross-section with the other, with a little round bit in the middle, with lightning bolts coming out. And, and the round bit he calls L, and that's the thing that, that connects these unconnected planes, right? And so often it might be a word, like in that case, making the tea, or it's a phrase, making the tea. It has two different meanings, so it, and it links these two unconnected worlds of golf and domestic beverage making, right? So the thing about that is uh, that... Uh, the resolution is, in a way, is just the simple accident of the thing that brings them together. However, there has to be some kind of... It can't just be two colliding planes. There has to be something that brings them together. Um, otherwise, it can, it can degenerate into pure absurdity that's not funny, right? Um, and sometimes the clash of planes sheds new light on the world as well. In an observational comedy, you uh, point out the absurdity of a situation, which then leaves you thinking, oh yeah, that is absurd. And it, you perhaps think about that the next time you encounter that situation. Within a double act, it's difficult to say exactly how that formulation would work. But what normally happens is that there's a victory in the favour of chaos and against order, in that the uh, funny man is normally closer to the audience than the straight man, is, is the greater source of affection. Bring me fun, bring me sunshine, bring me love. Hey! No, but you're turning the whole thing to ridicule. What do you mean? Well, I mean, you're making us look like a cheap musical act. Well, we are a cheap musical act. What are you talking well, about? You don't tell them, do you? Morecambe and Wise, possibly the last of the great double acts of the 20th century, aside, of course, from the immortal Fry and Laurie. But Ernie's question there is significant. You don't tell them, do you, is not a question you can happily answer in the affirmative, is it? Rather like that one. It invites a negative response. Think of Harry Enfield's famous, you didn't really want to have done that, did you, half a generation later. Uh, not that Eric and Ernie invented the form. Some of their jokes might have been old ones, but they weren't as old as all that. Here's Latin scholar Dr. Peter Jones with a really old one. A character in a comedy by Plautus thinks his ship has gone down. Obsecro num navis perit, I beg you, negative hint, my ship has gone down. My ship hasn't gone down, has it? And the reply, salva est navis, ne time, it's safe. Fear not. In other words, no, it hasn't. That was a negative answer you wanted. Phew! Normally speaking, if you want to indicate that you expect someone to answer your question with a no, you use the format beloved of mothers exerting moral pressure on recalcitrant children hurling porridge round the breakfast room. There, there, Charlotte and Toby. You don't want to do that in front of Granny, do you? I.e., Negative statement, you don't want to do that. Inviting positive agreement, do you? 
Latin plays similar tricks. It marks questions hinting that you expect a no for an answer with the little word num. Num quis hic est? Negative hint, is anyone here? Expected answer, nemo est. No one is. Just before we leave the question of the question stuck on at the end, let's hear again from David Crystal, who you can be sure has a much more succinct expression for the question stuck on at the end. Has he not? This is a tag question, and tag questions have been in the language for hundreds of years, and all languages have got them. What makes English different from a lot of other languages is that we've got a variety of tag questions which other languages don't have. In French, for example, the phrase n'est-ce pas is used regardless of who's speaking and who you're speaking to or how many people you're talking about and so on. Same in German with nicht wahr and so on. But in English, no, we say I'm going, aren't I? You're going, aren't you? They're going, aren't they? We were going, weren't we? Uh, they will be going, won't they? And so on. And it's a big problem for foreign learners having to learn all these different sorts of things. It's not just negative, of course. The point is it's negative if the preceding sentence is positive. If the preceding positive is negative, then the tag question is positive. So I say, I'm not going, am I? They aren't going, are they? They won't be going, will they? So you see, it it's always a complementary thing to the structure of the preceding sentence. Now, isn't it, has, uh, has always been a tag in the history of English, but in recent times, isn't it, has developed a new use, uh, largely because of the way in which it's been used by young immigrant kids and it's been picked up by other kids and shortened to in it. And in it is now being used exactly like French uses, n'est-ce pas? So I can say, I'm going in it, you're going in it, they're going in it, they were going in it, and so on. Which to older adult ears sounds absolutely horrendous, but only because the older people are used to the traditional system. You got to accentuate the positive, find it to negative, latch on to the affirmative, don't mess with Mr. In-Between. Positive, negative. One seems to invite the other. And the more positive a view is, the stronger appears the imperative for its rebuttal. It's perhaps a law of nature. Every opinion demands an opposition. We certainly seem creatures for whom negation is unavoidable. Even incontrovertible truth demands that we find a fault in it. This game of finding inconsistencies in your opponent's case is hardly a new one, but one old form of it has found modern expression. There are now lots and lots of websites devoted to hardcore exposure, and I do not mean physical exposure here, uh, but more the metaphysical. Scores of people intent upon demonstrating contradictions in religions. If God is the ultimate Ernie, then there's no shortage of those eager to play Eric. You can take your pick of sites devoted to alleged contradictions in the Bible, for instance, and contradictions in the Talmud, and in the Quran, and in L. Ron Hubbard's Dianetics, and the collected thoughts of Sun Myung Moon, too, for all I know. Melissa Raphael Levine teaches theology and religious studies at the University of Gloucestershire, and who better to recognize that written religious texts can present certain problems? All four Gospels contradict each other on the details of Jesus' last moments and resurrection. The Gospels of Matthew and Luke contradict each other on the genealogy of Jesus' father Joseph. Or there appear to be contradictions such as, how did Judas die? 
In Matthew, it says that he cast down the pieces of silver from the temple and departed and went out and hanged himself. But in Acts, he falls headlong, he bursts, and all his bowels gush out. It's a different story. But I, I don't really understand why people, male atheists, I suspect, sort of people a bit like train spotters, I don't understand why they spend hours compiling these long, tedious lists of scriptural contradictions. We've known uh, that the Bible isn't inerrant, uh, certainly since the late 17th century, when philosophers and theologians actually did begin to notice that there were all sorts of contradictions and inconsistencies. So these, uh, these contradiction spotters, these great compilers, aren't merely behind the times. I'd also want to say that they are theological illiterates. I think these people actually make all sorts of category mistakes about the nature of God. Because God isn't a heavenly man sitting behind a desk compiling more or less successfully accurate treaties about the nature and history of everything. In fact, as a theologian, I would want to say that God is not another object that exists in the universe. In fact, God doesn't exist at all. God is existence. Or as mystics might want to say, God is the only thing that exists. And therefore, God contains within God's self all things, including contradictions. Melissa Raphael Levine's testimony shows the extent of our addiction to contradiction. Faced with the claim of an ultimate truth, particularly one connected to religion, and the contradictaholic goes on a bender. Good grief indeed. I use the term advisedly here because that thought of religious tolerance highlights our deliberate mistake. One major omission from the panoply of contradictory linguistic devices which I'm now revealing, as you will discover if you listen carefully, although it would be pure evil of me to point out what is strangely familiar. And if I hear from you, dear listener, a pronounced silence, forgive me if I find it mildly abrasive. For countless numbers of these internal contradictions exist. It's a safe bet you'll know what I'm talking about, and you'll be terribly pleased when you get it. Ten I've used so far. Jumbo shrimp, anyone? While I go on thinking aloud... Or a gourmet pizza. Fresh cheese, perhaps. It would only be common courtesy of me to act naturally during this live recording, but it's a modern tradition to perform an unusual routine, even if it runs the calculated risk of ending up as a rather unfunny joke. That's a true story, by the way. And that makes 22 now. Still drawing a blank? Trawl your forgotten memories. Recall that single copy you made yourself when you were perhaps a student teacher. And constant change was the watchword at every solo concert that you attended. Remember when you'd accept only genuine imitations and make no allowance for slight exaggeration. But now if you fear being a social outcast, remember it is still possible to find a civil servant to help you find an airline schedule. What's more, they'll probably do it to critical acclaim. It's just common sense, really. That's 35. 35 examples. Surely you know by now. Yes, the oxymoron. That little phrase, perhaps only a couple of words, which contradict each other in some sense. Surely the highest form of contradictory wit yet devised by man. You may well be right. 
But that, I think, brings us very neatly back to where we came in. Thank you for joining me. It's been a pleasure, and I hope I can say that without any fear whatsoever of contradiction. Fry's English Delight in Contradiction was presented by Stephen Fry and produced by Ian Gardhouse. And